Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath afternoon that we can come together. We thank you for this weekend that we've had together, and I pray that you would speak through me now in a way that would give us perhaps a, a fresh perspective on how you want us to be sharing what we have in our lives. So thank you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title for the message this afternoon is The Unjust Steward, and this is based on a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16, and it's probably not a parable that you, you hear about so often, but there's some very interesting lessons that can be drawn from this parable, and we're going to look at this. Now, I'm going to start off by recounting a story of an individual that probably many of you remember. On December 11, 2008, Bernie Madoff, a noted financial investor, was arrested in New York, and he was charged with fraudulent financial transactions. It was basically a massive Ponzi scheme, and there was about an estimated $65 billion involved with losses of around $18 billion to its investors. Madoff was convicted of these crimes and was sentenced to 150 years in prison where he is still currently serving a term for his fraudulent activity. I mean, can you imagine squandering $18 billion of other people's money? In fact, if you read the story, there were some security and fraud investors who were noticing that there was no way that what Madoff was saying could be true because the returns that some of the investors were getting were like three or four times what the stock market in theory could actually produce, and yet nobody was paying attention to the reality that the whole scheme was a complete fraud. And that's a modern story that fits pretty well with this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. Now, in order to understand this parable in Luke 16, I'm going to mention briefly that the Pharisees were in the presence of Jesus as he's telling this parable. And the Pharisees scorned and despised Jesus because he would spend time with publicans and sinners, and they felt that that proved that he wasn't legitimate in the type of ministry that he was doing. So Jesus tells a couple of parables. He tells a parable of the lost coin, a parable of a lo the lost sheep, and the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. So Jesus is telling these parables to show the, the Pharisees, my ministry is to seek and to save those who are lost. So in the case of the lost sheep, Jesus would go out and find that one lost person, even if everybody else in the fold is safe. And in the case of the lost coin, nine are safe, one is lost. And then in the case of the prodigal son, this is a demonstration of how God relates to a repentant sinner. No matter how bad you may have been, when you come back to Jesus, he will accept you as if you never left. 
And so Jesus is trying to, to get through the thick skulls of these Pharisees that he came to save lost people. And now he tells a parable to the Pharisees to show them just how lost they are and if they would pay attention that he's trying to save them also. So notice this parable, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1, and he said also unto his disciples, now the Pharisees are present as well, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. So this man was so wealthy that he could afford to have a financial manager, someone who would, who would manage the affairs of his estate. I don't think most of us are wealthy enough or have anywhere near enough money to be hiring someone to be managing our money. But this rich man apparently was wealthy enough that he could have a steward or a financial manager to manage the affairs of his estate. But he received an accusation that his money was being squandered. So in verse 2, it says, And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. So this steward or financial manager is in big trouble. Basically, he's being fired, but before he loses his job, he has to churn in an account of everything that he has done with his master's money. Now, that's a problem. If you've squandered the goods and you're going to lose your job, after it's all over, what are you going to do then? I mean, you're going to be like this Bernie Madoff figure that this is the guy that wasted his master's money. You can't trust him. And so his last act on the job is going to be to give an account, and it's not going to be a good account. So the steward has to figure out what he's going to do. Verse 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So the steward knows that he's in big trouble. He knows that he's about to lose his job, and he realizes that he's going to go from being an esteemed financial manager who makes a good income to not having a job and where nobody else is going to want to hire him. And the only thing he's going to be able to do is maybe to do manual labor, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong, or there's no shame in doing manual labor, but that's not something he wanted to do. He didn't want to go out and dig ditches, and he certainly didn't want to beg for food, and if he didn't do manual labor or beg, he would be forced to starve, and so he's thinking on his feet, I've got to come up with a plan to protect me, which is what he's been doing all along anyway. He's been enriching himself at the expense of his master. So this steward hatches a crafty little plan. And he's saying, look, when I finish doing what I do, if my plan goes according to the way I want it to, these people out there will be obligated to take me in so that I will still be able to be taken care of. So in verse 5, we pick up the story. 
So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, how much owest thou unto my Lord? So he's like, my master, who's very rich, has people that owe money to him. So I'm going to go talk to these people. They're going to help me out. And so the first one says, a hundred measures of oil. And the steward said unto him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. You don't have to pay a hundred. I'm the steward. Pay 50 and your debt's cleared. How would you like 50% off your debt? That's a nice deal. Smart, quick thinking by the steward. He's not done. Verse 7, then said he to another, and how much owest thou? And he said, an hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, take thy bill and write four score, or eighty. So, twenty percent off. And he was probably sizing up each person. This guy, he's got money. He can do eighty percent. This guy, not so much. He could do fifty percent. And so he's thinking on his feet quickly. He's getting money that he can bring back to his master so that as he gives an account, he'll at least have some money that he can give back to the master that he has defrauded. But what he's actually doing is he's defrauding his master even further. So he's already wasted his master's money. Now here's the reality. If he had put the money into some kind of an account that was his own and he was being called to give an account, he would have been ready to just return the money back. But the money was gone. He'd squandered it. There was nothing left. So he's got to figure out how he's going to protect his own interest going forward. And so the way he protects his interest going forward is to give discounts to his Lord's debtors so that when he comes back to his Lord, he can say, here's some money for you. But at the same time, he's defrauded his master, his rich master, even further. Now, how did his master respond to this action. Verse 8, it's very interesting. It says, and the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Now notice what Jesus says here. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. What does Jesus mean by this? So here, this is a parable, which by the way, Ellen White tells us in Christ Object Lessons, a very similar story had happened among the class of publicans, and it was well known, and so Jesus is now using that story as an illustration to make a point that we're going to dig deeper into here, and Jesus starts the point that he is making, not to say, hey, isn't it interesting that this guy had already defrauded his master, and then he defrauded him even further. What he is saying is, look at how smart the children of this world are compared to the people of God. Now, just a couple of little points that I'm going to make, and then we're going to get to the deeper meaning. But sometimes I am embarrassed by the misuse of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy among Seventh-day Adventists. It's just downright embarrassing. I mean, you have people in the world who will follow common sense and who are much better at managing their money than God's people are. Some of the things that God's people get caught up in, people are saying, oh, wow, and they end up getting all caught up in these get-rich-quick schemes, Ponzi schemes, Bitcoin schemes, you name it. And then you have people in this world who actually have their heads on straight and their total focus is on taking care of themselves and of getting 
getting wealthy and taking care of their families, and they are wiser in taking care of their own interests than God's people are, who get caught up in the latest fanciful ideas of fanaticism or speculation or whatever else you can think of, because some people will just go for the latest passing crazy idea. The children of this world are in this age wiser than the children of light. But Jesus meant more than that. He wasn't, and I, another illustration, I've seen people living off of credit cards saying that the Lord's going to provide for their needs because they're doing ministry. They quit their jobs and live off of credit cards and somehow God's going to provide. That's not using wisdom. Children of this world are wiser than the children of light. But Jesus has a deeper meaning than that. Ellen White says in Christ Object Lessons, page 370, after relating this parable, Christ said, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. That is, worldly wise men display more wisdom and earnestness in serving themselves than do the professed children of God in their service to him. So Jesus gives this parable of an unjust steward who's already defrauded his master of untold amounts of money, and it's so bad that he can't even account for all the money that has been lost, and all he can do is defraud his master even further by giving discounts to his master's debtor so that when he is cast out from his master's employment, the people that he defrauded will be obligated to take him in because he cut them a deal. Well, that's using street smarts. And people will use street smarts and strategy and all sorts of ideas to advance worldly interest, and they use every ounce of energy and might to advance their cause in this world, and God looks at his people, and we're just sitting back waiting for the work to be finished by the people in ministry. And God's saying, where are my people, the children of light, using the means that I have entrusted them with? Where are they, and why are they not doing the work that I have entrusted them with? And he's looking at that particular day and time at the children of Israel. But it's true in our day as well. Ellen White goes on to say, so it was in Christ's day, so it is now. Look at the life of many who claim to be Christians. The Lord has endowed them with capabilities and power and influence. He has entrusted them with money that they may be co-workers with him in the great redemption. All his gifts are to be used in blessing humanity and relieving the suffering and the needy. We are to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to care for the widow and the fatherless, to minister to the distressed and downtrodden. God never meant that the widespread misery in the world should exist. So, not that everybody is a millionaire, so to speak, but everybody has time and influence and capabilities and talents, and what are you doing with the talents that God has given to you? Because just as the unjust steward was called to give an account of what he had done with his master's goods, each one of us has been entrusted with talents that God has given to, to each one of us. And we will be called to give an account. 
And you may be saying, oh, but I wasn't a rich man that had lots of money, but you had time and you had talent. You might be able to get up front and sing or play an instrument, or you might have the gift of encouragement where you could talk to people. And there's lots of different ways that God has talented his people. And yet so many people are using those talents not for the advancement of the cause of God, but like the unjust steward for the enrichment of their personal lives. And just as the unjust steward discovered that by enriching himself temporarily, he had no long-term benefit for doing so, those who take God's goods to enrich themselves in the present life have no long-term eternal security. So that's what Jesus is, is starting to get at when he says the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. In the next page, Ellen White says, alas, how many are appropriating to themselves the gifts of God. How many are adding house to house and land to land? How many are spending their money for pleasure, for the gratification of appetite, for extravagant houses, furniture, and dress? Their fellow beings are left to misery and crime, to disease and death. Multitudes are perishing without one pitying look, one deed of sympathy. Everyone will be required to render up his entrusted goods or gifts. In the day of final judgment, men's hoarded wealth will be worthless to them. You know, I lived here in Loma Linda for 10 years, and the mentality that can often take place, and it's not just Loma Linda, but among a professional community of people. I haven't just experienced it in Loma Linda, I've seen it in other places that I've worked. There is this mentality that because I am now professional and because I now have a degree and now I have means and assets, the mentality that you had when you came in to going to medical school or dental school or physical therapy or nursing or some other line of professional work was, I am going to get this degree to do a work so that I can be part of the right arm of the medical missionary work of the third angel's message of proclaiming the gospel to the world, and what ends up happening is you work really hard and you invest a lot of time and energy to accomplish a good thing, and then you get tempted with a bad thing, and that is that you can actually make a good living, and you can become very comfortable, and the present life ends up not looking so bad when you have seemingly so much. And then you hang out with your other colleagues who've also put lots of time and energy into all of these things, and then you reach this point where you can take care of yourselves and feel comfortable and enjoy the good life, and then you start to forget the entire purpose for why you went through all that work to get that training in the first place to help people. And yeah, you're kind of helping people, 
But at the end of the day, you're helping people and enriching yourself, and the money that you're gaining isn't being used to advance the cause of God. It's used to being adding house to house, land to land, extravagance to extravagance, and you live the good life, and there's people all around you that could use your time, influence, and perhaps even some money, and you're not interested in them because you've become so selfish in the personal self-interest that you're absorbed in. And Jesus is saying that if you're living your life that way, you are an unjust steward, ignoring the needs of those around you. Now, Jesus gives counsel on what you should do if you realize that you are in such a state. Verse 9. Now, the King James is not so clear, and LMY actually quotes the Revised Version, and this is how the Revised Version reads, and I say unto you, make to yourselves friends by means of the riches of unrighteousness, that when it shall fail, they may receive you into the eternal tabernacles. Some are confused when they read the King James reading to say, oh, those who are making money by the riches of unrighteousness will receive me into everlasting habitation. That's not what the verse means. What Jesus is saying and what the verse, if it's translated correctly, means is that make friends through the riches that God has given you. And it may be money. It may be other talents or time, whatever it may be. But make friends with the poor and the downtrodden around you by the riches that are in this world. Because when the riches fail they may receive you into everlasting habitation. And those who receive you into everlasting habitation are not the unrighteous, it's actually the heavenly beings. Notice what Ellen White says in Great Controversy 373, God and Christ and angels are all ministering to the afflicted, the suffering and the sinful. Give yourself to God for this work, use his gifts for this purpose, and you enter into partnership with heavenly beings. Now I like this next section. Your heart will throb in sympathy with theirs. You hear that? Your heart will throb in sympathy with the heavenly beings toward those who are needy. You will be assimilated to them in character. To you, these dwellers in the eternal tabernacles will not be strangers. When earthly things shall have passed away, the watchers at heaven's gates will bid you welcome. In other words, if you have learned to work in harmony with Christ and the heavenly angels, to use the entrusted riches that God has given you to be a blessing to the people around you when your heart beats in sympathy with heavenly beings to those who are in need, you will not be a stranger when you enter into heaven because you have been united in the work that has been designed by God for us to do. The problem is, is that human beings are naturally selfish, and rather than looking for those around us who are in need that could receive blessing from us, we end up taking care of ourselves. And we run the risk 
of being like the unjust steward who will be called to give an account. Now, I'm going to read just a little bit more from Christ's object lessons, and then we're going to go to the rest of the, the parable, or, or the explanation that Jesus gives after the parable. This is Christ's object lessons 373. Every year, millions upon millions of human souls are passing into eternity unwarned and unsaved. Did you hear that? Every year, millions upon millions of human souls are passing into eternity unwarned and unsaved. And I'm sorry, I've heard mentalities in the church sometimes where people are like, oh, well, when the loud cry goes out, then we'll reach the masses. What about now? What about the time that you have now to reach these people that you have influence with? From hour to hour in our varied life, opportunities to reach and save souls are opened to us. These opportunities are continually coming and going. You know, I, I think of a story of, of a lady who's one of my patients in my clinic, and it wasn't that long ago that she got very sick, and I'd been seeing her for some fairly routine neurologic difficulties, and it just so happened that when I was at the hospital, I heard the other physician say her name and describe the fact that she was going into respiratory distress and they were going to have to intubate her, so I immediately rushed over to the ICU to say hi to her, and as soon as I walked into the room, her face lit up, and she gave me a hug. And she's a lady that I had shared the book Great Controversy with some time ago, and she said that at one point she had actually been going to an Adventist church, which was a, a bit of a surprise to me, and we had a conversation about that. And then she was transferred from our small hospital to, to one of the larger hospitals in Nashville, and the reports that I was getting was that she may not live to see another day. And it struck me really hard because this was a lady that I see very routinely, pretty frequently in my clinic, and I was asking myself the question, what more could I have done to touch her heart with the time and the influence that I had been granted her? Now, thankfully, to my joy and surprise, I thought she wasn't going to make it. About two or three months later, she shows up back in my clinic and she, her son came with her that particular day, and her son was convinced that she had been hallucinating and that there was no way I would have come into her ICU room to see her. And so I, I, I told her, I said, you know what, the last time I saw you, I wasn't feeling so good about what was going to happen to you, but I came and I saw you, and she was like, see, I knew you came. And she had almost been convinced by her son that she had been hallucinating. And those are little opportunities that we can build on. That's just one example, and you can apply that to other scenarios in your life where people are coming along. They, and the, I'm sure she'll never hear this particular presentation that I'm giving. She's a lady that has had many struggles and is hurting in so many different ways. 
and we run into those people all of the time, and it's so easy to compartmentalize our lives and to just kind of do our thing, and we'll see them for a few minutes, and then we hardly think about the struggles that some of these people are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, and while it is true that we may have trials, we are the people of God, We have God in our lives. Jesus is our Savior. We understand that he has died for our sins, and by faith, that as we accept his sacrifice, we have salvation, and that we have a message to share to the world. And yes, we may have trials, but what about people out there who don't have God, who are going through trials? Think about how difficult that must be for them. And while it's hard for us, it's even harder for them because they have no hope. And God is looking to us to reach these people. Days, weeks, and months are passing. We have one day, one week, one month less in which to do our work. A few more years at the longest, and the voice which we cannot refuse to answer will be heard saying, give an account of thy stewardship. You know, this is a bit of a homecoming for me to come back to Loma Linda, and when Advent Hope started in 2002, I was 24 years old going on 25, and here I am now 40 years old. And I think about that as I read that statement, day after day has gone by, week after week, month after month, year after year, and I have 15 less years of my life now to do the work that God has given me to do, and the question that I will have to answer to the God of the universe is, what have I done with those 15 years, those last 15 years? Or what, about how, what have I done with the entire 40 years in my life? And I know some of you are older than 40 years, and you're still young, so don't worry, but I'll tell you, when I turned 40, I'm like, man, I'm halfway to 80. And it goes quick. And they say it does, but it really does. I mean, it doesn't seem like it was 15 years ago, but anyway, that's what happens. And we all are going to be called to give an account. This next paragraph is sobering. Christ calls upon everyone to consider make an honest reckoning. Now, think about this. There's two scales here. Put into one scale Jesus, which means eternal treasure, life, truth, heaven, and the joy of Christ and souls redeemed. Put into the other scale every attraction the world can offer. Into one scale, put the loss of your own soul and the souls of those whom you might have been instrumental in saving into the other for yourself and for them, a life that measures with the life of God. Have you ever thought of that? One scale, Jesus, hope, joy, eternal life, and all those who can be saved because of your influence. The other scale, put the loss of your soul and the loss of the souls of everybody else who you could have been a witness for. Way for time and for eternity. While you are thus engaged, Christ speaks, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now we're going to continue on with what Jesus says, but think about that. Think about those scales in your life. Where would the scales 
balance out the way you are following the Lord right now. Now, Jesus continues, verse 10, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Now, the obvious implication here is that the unjust steward was not faithful in much or in least. He that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. The, the unjust steward had defrauded his master of many riches, and then he goes out and defrauds him even further with the debtors. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon or riches, who will commit to you to your trust the true riches? So sometimes people in, in ministry and in God's work, I've seen this happen. Oh, we're going to be good Adventists and we're going to go and do God's work. But at my job, it's okay if I tell white lies and if I say some yeah, borderline words that aren't the, the best language to be using. And I might fudge a little bit on my taxes so my return will look a little bit better. But as long as I'm doing God's work, it doesn't matter, right? No, it matters in every way. He that is unjust and least will be unjust also and much. And if you are not faithful in worldly things, things such as your taxes or the way you relate to people at work and the language that you use and the, the way you live your life, why do you think God wouldn't entrust to you the, the work that he has entrusted to Seventh-day Adventists? He is not going to trust you in doing his work if you're not faithful in that which is least. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon, or you cannot serve God in riches. In other words, Jesus is saying, you cannot serve God and the things of this world at the same time. The children of this world are wiser than the children of light, because the children of this world are serving their master. They are serving the master of this world with all of their hearts. But too many of the children of light are trying to follow God and the things of the world, and they're doing a half-hearted job in both endeavors. And so the unjust steward was actually better at what he did than what many of God's people are in trying to do the work that God has given them to do. Now notice verse 14. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. Now, the reason why they derided him is because they knew that Jesus was telling the parable to describe them. Here's how the parable describes the Pharisees. God had entrusted the Pharisees as the leaders of his chosen people. And as the leaders of his chosen people, they were entrusted with the riches of the truth that was to be disseminated to a lost and dying world around them. But rather than disseminating truth to a lost and dying world around them, the Pharisees put up a wall between the Jews and the rest of the world, and then they used the truths of Judaism, which were supposed to be the truths of Scripture for all the world, to enrich themselves so that even the poorest people were having to pay temple tax for offerings and sacrifices, and the Pharisees are going around in their rich robes and garments, and they 
because they were covetous, had used ministry as a way to enrich themselves. Now, you better be careful if you run into a ministry or a speaker or whoever, and I don't have anyone in mind particularly, who seems more interested in how they can make money for themselves than in advancing the cause of God. And that does happen. Because there are ministries and ministers who are out there that are so talented that they can actually get very wealthy off the people through their talent. And the Pharisees had done just such a thing. They had squandered the riches of truth that God had given to them, and now they were going to be called to give an account of the stewardship that God had given to them in presiding over God's people. And so Jesus says in verse 15, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. So you can justify yourselves before the people and make it appear as if you're righteous and holy and you have it all together, and you can come to church on Sabbath and make it look that everything is good, but God knows your heart. God knows that you're only doing this to make yourself look good, to make a name for yourself, and to enrich yourself with either influence, money, pride, whatever the case may be, and you're not lifting a finger to help a lost and dying world. That was true of the Pharisees. And then he says to the Pharisees in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. This is similar to what I talked about last night, that those who heard the preaching of truth were starting to take the kingdom of heaven by force. And Jesus is saying, you've had the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament teaching you what truth is. And now John the Baptist has come, and he's preached the gospel to you. And you've heard truth, and you've had scripture which shows you truth, and yet you're not following. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. And then notice this illustration that Jesus uses. It was true then and it's true today. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Now why did Jesus use this illustration of adultery? Here's why. Because the Pharisees changed the law of God from it being an offense in the sight of God to commit adultery to making it very easy where you would just get a simple divorce and you would put your wife away and then you could go out and marry someone else and it was as if nothing had ever happened and Jesus is saying you are the leaders of my people you are the spiritual leaders who are supposed to be exalting the law of God and you're going to strain at a gnat swallow a camel you'll say hey you can't heal a sick man whose hand is withered on the Sabbath but it's okay if you divorce your wife and commit adultery and so you claim to be the upholders of the law of God, but yet the reality is, is that you're so covetous that you're allowing adultery to take place in the church because you esteem the approval of man greater than the approval of God, and you know that if you allow adultery to take place, that people are going to like you, and they're going to continue to put money into the church, and you'll get wealthier off of that decision. 
You're just covetous, and you're squandering the riches that has been entrusted to you as the leaders of my people. Now, I have a question for us today. We look at the Pharisees and say, wow, they were such unjust stewards. They threw it all away. They had all of this truth that God had entrusted them with, and how could they let it just fall away and become so covetous and proud and not evangelize the lost and dying world? And my question to you is, are you any different than the Pharisees of old? How could we be like the Pharisees of old? How could we be like the unjust? Here it is pretty simple. We find a church that fits our standard, and we come, but we don't want to be pushed too hard, so we just kind of sit, and we listen, and we don't get involved, and we come week after week, but we're not really spending time with God in our daily walk. We're certainly not doing anything to witness to our co-workers around us. And in fact, some people might actually be surprised to find out that we're Christian, let alone Seventh-day Adventists. We keep quiet. We claim to be a silent witness, but our witness is so silent that it doesn't even exist. And we know all of these things, but we're not doing anything to share with the people around us. We don't have a heart for the lost and the dying in this world. And because we're covetous, the effort and the energy in our life is devoted to the enriching of our personal means and for our family and for our future. And little goes into advancing the cause of God. And we are God's last day people, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, who have been entrusted with a knowledge of all of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the sanctuary message, the testimony of Jesus as found in the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy. We have all of these things, and so many of us are sitting on this wealth that God has entrusted us with. And then you look in the church, and we claim to be upholders of the law of God, and we have what I call selective outrage. So we'll see some abomination come into the church, and we'll stand up, and we'll, we'll speak our peace, and we'll say, we've got to follow the Bible on this. And then if it's our child that's committing adultery, we're like, oh, well, we can't really do anything about that, because if their name's taken off the books, then they might get discouraged. And so we have this selective outrage where we'll call sin by its right name when it suits our selfish personal interests, but we won't call sin by its right name if it crosses our personal selfish well-being and if it makes us look bad. The selective outrage in Adventism, it exists, I can tell you that. Just like the Pharisees had selective outrage, they would become apoplectic when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but they would allow adultery in the church, and it's happening in the church today. We'll have outrage over one thing, and then we'll swallow the camel by letting adultery in the church or something else in the church because it will be an embarrassment if we deal with it. 
So we don't deal with it, and we think things are okay, and then people are watching what is happening, and we're, they're like, you say you're the people of God, and you're not even following his law? And so the Lord looks down on his church today, and he is saying, where are the children of light? What are you doing with the means that God has entrusted you with? You may never have a million dollars in your bank, and that's good and fine, but you have this treasure of truth called the Bible, and we've been given an understanding of the three angels' messages. What are you doing with that? That is worth more than all the money in the world. And you have a knowledge of that, which most of the world doesn't have. You know, when I flew in yesterday to Los Angeles, and I looked down, and it was a reminder of how many people are in this area. It's just like, wow. Masses and masses of people. I mean, where I live, I mean, you can go a couple of miles without running into anybody. Not here. There's so many people who don't know what we know. And what are we doing? When we love Jesus, our heart beats in sympathy. It throbs in sympathy, in sympathy with God and with Jesus and the angels. And we will have a motivation to do the work of saving lost souls, those who are hurting, those who are in need, those who are waiting for meat in due season. And, you know, I hope we've been here as a ministry since 2002. It's never a safe thought to think that we've arrived as a ministry because there is so much more that we can do. And, you know, the old saying, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. I hope that you'll lift up the arms of the leadership team here and start helping them to do more of the work, to reach the lost and the dying in this area, because there are so many not far from here who need to know what we know. It's not enough to just come week after week and to hear messages of truth. There is a point in time where we take what we know and we put it into practice and we start sharing with others what we have. And I believe that Jesus is coming very soon, and he is the righteous judge of all the universe, and he will call each one of us to give an account of the time that we have and the talent that we have. And we're either going to be like the servant who had five talents and multiplied it into another five to have ten, the servant who had two that multiplied it into another two who had four, or we're going to be like the other servant who squandered the one talent and didn't utilize it. We all have talents, whatever it may be. And God has given Advent Hope a lot of talents. And with the knowledge that we have, I pray that each one of us will use that knowledge to be a light to the world around us. Amen? So I just want to challenge you in this coming year. Look for ways to reinvest the riches that God has put into your hands into the work of saving souls around you. And God will bless your effort. And when you enter through the heavenly gates, you will not be a stranger. You will hear the words of the Lord saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And you will be in a place that you have used to, that you're already used to being in by doing the work here on this earth that God has given us to do. Amen? That's my challenge to you. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for how Jesus was so masterful at giving us parables to show us the deceptiveness of the selfishness of our covetous hearts. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have squandered the talents that you have given us by not sharing what we know with those around us. I pray that we would come up higher and that we would do what we can through your grace to share what we know and what we have with the lost and the dying of this world. And I just pray that you would be with Advent Hope. Bless this ministry. Thank you for the work that you have done through this group. I pray that you will call them to a higher experience and that many more will do work of ministry and evangelism and of soul winning and that we will see Jesus come very soon. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.